All right. Thank you all for joining us. I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. The Library Company, as I'm sure many of you know, is a research library, but we were originally founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. Today, we support all sorts of tremendous researchers from all over the world that come to use our collections, working in print culture, early American history, literature, culture, women's history, African-American history, and political economy. This program is a fireside chat, the idea being that we have a weekly webinar series that helps us sustain our community while we're in this weird space where we're kind of open, but not really. And I've been really grateful for all the fellows who have volunteered to help us sustain that intellectual community while we're at this incongruous moment. So with that, um, it's my pleasure to introduce our guest tonight. Maria Zit, please correct me. Zitterak, it's fine, Will. Don't worry about it. <laughs> is Associate Professor of English at the University of Calgary. She is the Principal Investigator of the Canadian Research Council-funded project Seeds for Tomorrow, a material history of 18th century seed exchange and seed collections. Her articles on material culture and book history have appeared in such journals as Victorian Studies, Studies in Romanticism, Museum History Journal, and the Journal of British Studies. In 2019, she curated the exhibition, Nature on the Page, the Print and Manuscript Culture of the Victorian Natural History for the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library at the University of Toronto, and is the author of the catalog by that very name. Notably, she was a library company fellow in both 2003 and 2015. Welcome, Maria. Thanks so much, Will. So thanks very much for that introduction, Will, and thank you for the invitation to um, speak today. And thank you all for coming. I'm going to be speaking about uh, seed packets today, and I just ask um, that you don't circulate, uh, cite this paper without um, permission. There will be a recording of it. Um, and please do not circulate any of its images. Uh, um, some of them have been published in an article related to the project, so I'm happy to provide the link to that, but other images are just um, my private research photos for reference, so um, I don't have permission to circulate them kind of out there. So uh, I'd like to begin with thanking uh, the library company again for this invitation and also the curators at the two institutions where I have completed the bulk of this research. So those two institutions are the Lemaine Society of London and the Natural History Museum. And curators at both those institutions not only facilitated access, uh, my access to these materials, but also contributed intellectually to this project. We had many conversations about the material and they shared their scientific expertise and their curatorial expertise, um, and they are really everywhere in this project. As well, former curators, so current curators at these two institutions, but former curators are really responsible for even having these materials to consult. Um, as you'll see when we start looking at them, uh, they and well, I know uh, that this was the case that there were there ha over the decades, there has been, you know, pressure to just throw out these objects as rubbish. They're small paper objects and they are have gotten quite dirty. So um, I really think the curators who at every step made a decision to preserve these objects. This evening, I wish to explore some connections between books and seeds in the long 18th century. 
of late book, histor book historical studies seem to be taking an environmental turn with sustained attention being paid to ecologies of texts, how books are made from organic, non-human materials and how they embed a host of environmental relationships. And two monographs from this year, Jonathan Sension's The Intimacy of Paper and Joshua Calhoun's The Nature of the Page focus on paper as immutable object. Flaxseed plant, linen rag, printed page. Now for the biologist Blair Hedges, um, he approaches questions of biodiversity in books from a different perspective. Um, he's been looking at evidence of wormholes in early modern woodcuts. So I'm just giving you an idea of some of this work in this environmental um, vein. Uh, Hedges calls these wormholes trace fossils, and they've enabled him to map um, a couple of different species of uh, wood boring um, beetles and their species ranges over, throughout the early modern period. Book historical questions have also been uh, um, approached in relation to the environment by the Early Modern Recipes Project as uh, centered at the Folger Library. And now it's Farm to Table Project. And these, um, these projects have already shown that Renaissance kitchens were actually quite paper heavy. Um, operations, preserving cherries, baking wafers, took paper. My own research focuses on the circulation and preservation of seeds in the 18th century and beyond. Just as a variety of papers were necessary to cook, bake, preserve foodstuffs, and prepare medicines, paper materials were required to store and to exchange seeds during this period. While larger quantities of exotic seeds were transmitted in boxes and in cloth bags and conveyed by ships, um, smaller amounts of seeds were transmitted in paper packets, which were then enclosed in letters. And in what follows, I explore some of the specific paper materials repurposed for seed exchange, and then consider how this particular example of paper recycling offers a fresh path for pursuing ecological histories of the book. By the early modern period, the privy paper trope was well established. These wry observations by commentators that a book rolling off the press one day might wind up as someone's toilet paper the next. A like trope does not seem to have developed for when the pages of sermons and scientific journals were recycled and, and turned into seed packets, but scraps of print and manuscript were indeed recycled to convey and store seeds, as we'll see. What sets apart this kind of paper recycling from books that were destined for the privy is that when print and manuscript waste was made into a seed packet, its life cycle had a chance of being extended. This talk aims to bring into sharper focus the paper apparatus of 18th century gardens and botanical exchanges and the ways in which seeds are the stuff of book history. Two figures who assembled vast networks for seed exchange during the long 18th century were the diarist and gardener, John Evelyn, and the library company's own book agent in London, Peter Collinson. Writings by Evelyn and Collinson allow us to glimpse how books, seeds, and environmental concerns were yoked together in the minds of those who sought to cultivate exotic plants during the Little Ice Age. Evelyn provides a vivid account of the 10-day period in January 1684 when extreme cold gripped London. As the frost fair, um, as the sorry, as the frost became more severe, the Thames froze over, now you know, and a winter bacchanalia was held on the river. 
Fairgoers could partake in bull baiting and horse races or take in theatrical entertainments such as um, puppet plays and interludes. Commercial booths also quickly established themselves on the ice, and Evelyn is particularly struck by the printing trade's presence at the Frost Fair, and he observes the following. A printing press where the people and ladies took a fancy um, to have their names printed and the day and year set down and, and when printed on the Thames. He characterizes this ready market for Frost Fair souvenirs as a humor, which took so universally that twas estimated the printer gained five pounds pound a day for printing one line only at six pence a name, besides what he got for ballads, etc. If Evelyn is in awe of how printers mobilize their presses to exploit a new market for um, ephemera, he moves swiftly to register the effects of the Little Ice Age um, and this related event on the environment. He calls it a severe judgment upon the land. Trees were shattered as though hit by lightning. Deer, cattle, fish, and birds, he writes, succumbed to the cold. The destruction of timber, he adds, will swiftly result in fuel, fuel shortages. As well, the air quality of London quickly deteriorated such that, um, such that fuliginous steam of sea coal enveloped the city, as he writes. Simply crossing the street caused one's lungs um, to fill with, as he puts it, gross particles and to become short of breath. Evelyn, we should remember, authored one of the first anti-pollution tracts um, called Fumifugium in 1661. And in this tract, he called for the uh, replanting of London with sweet smelling shrubs to mitigate the effects of sea coal smoke. Now, cataloging the environmental consequences of the extreme cold in 1684, Evelyn the gardener grimly notes that, quote, all our exotic plants and greens are universally perishing. He, goes to his uh, Say's Court estate in Deptford and he finds that frost and rigorous weather, as he puts it, dealt with my garden. I found um, many of the greens and rare plants utterly destroyed, the oranges and myrtles very sick, the rosemary and laurel dead to all appearance, but the cypress like to injure it out. Like Collinson after him, Evelyn had a web of correspondents who supplied him with exotic seeds for propagation on his English estate. His source for Cypress seeds was actually his father-in-law, Richard Brown, in Paris. Um, and Mark Laird has written extensively about how Evelyn was gardening during the Little Ice Age without really knowing it. In his account of the Frost Fair, then, we have an adaptable book trade, an extreme weather event associated with the Little Ice Age, and seed exchange all linked together books, seeds, and the environment. In this paper, I'll be tracing the ways in which physical seeds and their survival can expand what we consider matter for our histories of the book. Although Collinson was writing and gardening several decades after Evelyn, he too records periods of strange weather as he sows his garden with exotics. In a letter from January 1739, Collinson thanks a correspondent in the American colonies for seeds of the umbrella tree, noting that his contact there labors under challenging conditions, um, alternating periods of wet and dry. Collinson laments that in England, quote, we have at this juncture an extreme of cold. A sharp frost began the 26th December and has continued ever since. Till last week, we had no relaxation. The Thames is full of ice 
and at sundry times has been crossed by numbers of people and booths in it. As was the case for Evelyn about 60 years earlier, an extended period of cold has meant not only a frost fair, but horticultural challenges. And Collinson explains to his correspondent that, quote, this is a trying time for our gardens and South Country plants. I have been obliged to keep constant fires in my stove and greenhouse, by which means I am in hopes I shall be but a small sufferer. But those who would not take the pains are quite demolished. The frost was so very sharp and severe. The like has not been known since the 1715-16 winter or 1709. Now Collinson's South Country plants at his Mill Hill garden were always a precarious enterprise. And the harsh winter means he must intervene even more than usual in the microclimate of his greenhouse. Two decades later, though, in 1761, Collinson finds himself in an entirely different um, situation. Now he's reveling in the mildest winter since 1759. And, quote, the autumnal flowers were not gone before spring began in December with aconites, snowdrops, polyanthuses. With just a couple of frosty days in all January, a more delightful season could not be enjoyed in southern latitudes. In January and February, my garden was covered with flowers. And it's hard to read that without a kind of ominous sense now. As Collinson must adapt to changing environmental conditions to make his Mill Hill garden a collection of botanical rarities, he's also anxious that the seeds he receives from his contacts are fresh and viable. His letters are filled with accounts of seeds going astray during their transit to England or arriving in a state of decay. Sometimes it wasn't the storage conditions on the ship that made seeds un unviable. They'd simply been gathered at the wrong time, at the wrong season or stage. Then there was the issue of paper. As I've written elsewhere, Collinson's letters are threaded with references to the seeds he begs from his contacts on the continent and in the American colonies. He was frequently irritated uh, when seeds would arrive without pro proper identification or sowing instructions. Ever concerned with how his correspondents, such as John Bartram, will transmit their seeds, Collinson sends through Joseph Breitnall parcels of waste paper, as well as choirs of brown and whited paper for Bartram to wrap seeds in and to dry their voucher specimens, so the, the sort of flowered versions of the seeds. While I've not been able to identify precise examples of the waste paper that Collinson sent to his correspondents, such as Bartram, this is an example of printer's waste. Um, and what we have here are um, issues of the Spectator 1712, uh, issue happens to be on Paradise Lost. Um, Joseph Banks used these this um, printer's waste for um, his Endeavour voyage in 1768 and it's filled with plants at the ship's first part, port of call, Madeira. And this is just an example of some of the specimens that remain um, within, uh, within this waste at the Natural History Museum. Now, the quantities of printer's waste to which Bakes had access for collecting and, and preserving plant material were obviously much greater um, than what Collinson had recourse for for his correspondence. But as we'll see on a smaller scale, scraps of periodicals and other so-called ephemeral publications were recycled as seed wrappers. 
The letters of Collinson and Evelyn and others make it possible to document specific instances of 18th century seed exchange and the dynamics of reciprocity which, which um, structured these exchanges. We know what kinds of seeds tended to be exchanged, usually those that were more rare and novel and not commercially available. So outside kind of consumer circuits. And something I've written about are the qualities which made a seed acceptable. You hear that language, pray, find these seeds acceptable. Um, and then that runs throughout the letters. Just as books have provenance that make them value, valuable, seeds, um, if they had associations with a famous gardener or a famous um, naturalist, that added to their value. Um, and in the context of gentleman's civility, there was more confidence that the seeds received from a personal contact would come up um, rather than those bought at the kind of mercenary um, nurseryman's shop. We have, so while we have really good textual records for seed exchange activities for the men above, for the figures above, the actual paper materials of their seed transfers do not appear to have survived. And, you know, if they're uh, hidden away somewhere in um, the library company, that's great, it's called some seed wrappers, but I haven't been able to trace um, either any of the specific seed packets associated with um, these two figures. Now, it's not entirely surprising because for these gardeners, when they would have received a packet of novel seeds um, in the right season, they were probably just sown quite quickly in their gardens. And there's much scholarly interest in the lives of paper right now. Um, flaxy, how the flaxy plant was transformed into linen, textiles and then linen rags um, fashioned into paper and then printed waste uh, being ground um, into pulp board. It's difficult though to imagine paper seed packets which measured about three inch, three by two inches, I'll forego metric um, for this American audience. So three by two inches uh, going back into the secondhand paper trade. At most such paper packets in Evelyn's household might have gone to the kitchen for the baking of very tiny wafers or other small delicate confections. As Helen Smith has shown in her illuminating article from 2017 on early modern paper, paper was both an ingredient in medicines as well as um, the material for dressing wounds and ulcers on the skin. So it's possible that um, Evelyn's seed packets wound up as plasters or bandages. Um, we do know that his 19th century descendants used the manuscript pages of his diary as dress patterns. So if Evelyn's paper packets never left his Sakes court estate after they had conveyed their precious cargo, and if Collinson's archives, archive now bears no traces of his seed exchanges, a quantity of late 18th century seed packets has survived in various British repositories. This is a pretty typical um, seed packet from the long 18th century. You might just see um, uh, the name of the plant uh, inscribed on the outside of the packet. And then here we have HQ, probably referring to herbarium Q. Um, so probably cataloged um, at, by Q. This is another example, Crown Point near Norwich, Mr. Sowerby, 1794. Um, and this is probably James Sowerby, um, the naturalist to whom this description refers. Now, sometimes the packet will 
display taxonomical problems. So sort of renaming or working out of how to identify um, what's inside long brown swelling, um, linear pods to I have, um, I think it's I have, and then you can see kind of working out what variety of mimosa it is. Now this packet postdates um, Peter Collinson's um, life at, at Mill Hill. Um, he died in 1768, but we can assume these, this was probably the Swiss pine um, that he cultivated there in perfect cones. Mill Hill, 1805, the ink has just rubbed off a little bit. And I don't think, it's, it's perhaps not obvious from the packets I've shown so far, but what I'm dealing with um, are packets that still contain their seeds today, so from the 18th century. Because this particular form of paper recycling then preserves organic objects intact, the notion of ecologies of text suddenly becomes much less metaphorical. Certainly ecologies are embedded in the very paper of the packets, plant materials were used to produce the paper and animals may have been used depending on what kind of paper it was to make the sizing of the paper if it was sized. But I'm interest, interested principally in what kinds of prints and print and manuscript materials had afterlives as seed and plant wrappers and how the presence of seeds in books speaks to interrupted or arrested ecologies. What sorts of print and manuscript materials were reused as seed and plant wrappers? This is an example of a 1790 sermon um, that served as the outer wrapper for um, the plant material and seeds within that then had a secondary wrapper. This is an example, Swiatinia, um, that's the outside of the wrapper. And then here, some kind of grocery, um, gross, grocer's bill or advertisement, and then somebody in manuscript hand um, has written best turkey coffee. And we have a kind of winterized um, seed there of the Swiatinia. Um, and new here, um, indicating kind of, right, the novelty of what's in this packet. Here we have um, an advertisement for an estate, it's just cut off near Covent Garden, um, an improvable estate that still contains um, some seeds. And then here, um, a page of the periodical English Botany that wraps um, some seeds of the Dorianthes, um, which seems to be uh, native to Eastern Australia. And I've also find, found other examples of newspapers from the 18th century, like, uh, or issues of 18th century newspapers, I should say, the True Britain and others used for this purpose. Manuscript items were also reused um, as seed wrappers or packets, and this is an example of an 18th century French letter. Um, and other, just to give you a kind of swath, other sorts of manuscripts or items written um, in manuscript, uh, account ledgers, uh, receipts for books. Now, Heather Wolf's important work um, on the cost of early modern paper tells us that writing paper was not as expensive or scarce as has hitherto been thought. The average amount spent on paper a year was one penny um, per person, and this was relatively affordable for um, most people. 
even so, paper was costly enough that um, old letters would find new use as seed packets rather than fresh paper being bought for the purpose. And one of my data sets is um, this large quantity of French 18th century letters. And I'm still working out whether these are copy letters or draft letters um, or um, incoming letters, but I'm dealing with these very small, small fragments of them, as you can see. It was not uncommon for, as and I've shown you an example, for a botanical um, publication to be used to wrap um, plant material, but most often it was uh, simply whatever paper was to hand. And ha having examined a vast quantity of these um, seed packets and wrappers, among the things I've not encountered, leaves of a Bible used to make a seed packet. So sermon, yes, um, not leaves of, the, of a Bible. Certainly people use Bibles in which to preserve specimens that were important to them. Um, we find, often find flowers in Bibles, but bound items were just simply too valuable and too expensive to be taken apart for wrapping seeds or cones. Um, it was usually paper items that had outlived their sort of time sensitive purpose, like a, maybe a legal document um, or something like an educational treatise. Uh, I've seen grammar books um, used as seed packets. I've also found book prospectuses uh, so for subscribers. So again, that kind of item that would have a particular time sensitive purpose, um, but after that would not um, really need to be saved. Though I've not found any Frost Fair printed souvenirs, I would suspect that given the size of some of those, that would be the kind of so-called ephemeral um, printed item that would have been reused in this context. I certainly have come across lottery tickets, for example, that have been used to wrap seeds. I'm careful not to use um, the date, sort of a date on a printed item or even on a manuscript item to um, date the time uh, that the seeds were collected or preserved, because we all know that some paper items can lie around for a while before they find a new use. And indeed, those sheets from the 1712 issue of The Spectator, which I showed earlier, um, those seem to have stayed put for um, half a century, for over half a century before banks took them on board the endeavor. So it's perilous to use these materials to date, um, date the seed exchanges too closely. What you'd want is a docu an archival document to do that. That plant material from all parts of the globe was circulated in the context of Britain's 18th century imperial projects has been well documented. And Banks's central role in um, what was what has been called plant transfer, and I think that's a sort of loaded term, um, plant transfer has been examined quite closely. Britain's drive to cultivate profitable species in the colonies and to exploit the potential of unfamiliar plants for medicines, for foodstuffs, for commodities, um, and new consumer goods was relentless. Not only were vast quantities of seeds and plants sent back to Kew Gardens from various colonies, but greenhouses with banks' um, assistance were constructed on board the outgoing ships uh, to bring live plants, to transport live plants into the colonies. 
Banks's herbarium, like that of Hans Sloan, um, has received much attention. And there are many, um, as you've, I'm sure, seen uh, images of um, these herbaria, the plants that were collected in situ um, in the colonies, in the Pacific, in Australasia, and then mounted on sheets of paper. And polite terms such as commercial espionage have been used to describe Banks's um, botanical collecting and that of his network. But, you know, I think, I think many of us would probably call it plant theft uh, today. Now, a number of the extant 18th century seed packets that I've been exploring issue from precisely these imperial contexts, but have been left out of the scholarship entirely. And I think my article from last year was the first publication to show images of these packets. Perhaps because these packets contain their original seeds, they materialize the interrupted or arrested ecologies of colonial botanizing, botanizing quite vividly, I think. Some packets I've examined have provenance linking their specimens directly to James Cook's Endeavour Voyage and with later attempts by Britain to establish settlements in New South Wales. Now the ink is quite faint now, but you can just make out bot Bay in the middle of this packet, and even more faintly, almost Major Ross. And up, up above, um, we have Picaria seeds. Robert Ross was the Lieutenant Governor of um, the settlement at Norfolk Island in New South Wales. And invaded by, in, well, invaded by colonists, Botany Bay was actually the land of the Darwal people. And this packet of Picaria seeds was probably sent to James Edward Smith around 1790. Smith was a botanist and founder of the Linnaean Society, which I mentioned earlier. Um, you know, to just take a second example here, um, you can see Nor Norfolk Island at the top of this packet, which I have um, partly opened here, and flax plant, um, and then on the left, Dr. Smith. So this was a packet um, sent associated with this, this settlement again, but probably by the, its third governor, um, Philip Gidley King. And it's one in a series of packets um, that have these drawings on the outside, and that was quite unusual um, to have kind of just even this, this visual element on these packets. This one houses the seeds of the New Zealand flax plant, so they were interested, I think, in trying to cultivate it um, on Norfolk Island. Sometimes packets associated with Britain's colonial projects even contain um, swatches of linen that have been um, made from the fibrous plants that um, the, the colonists were interested in cultivating or even spun thread. Um, so you see a lot of these examples having to do with fibrous plants and their kind of end product. Even though these packets are usually so minimally inscribed, in some ways their contents have been overclassified. Linnaean or English names, as we've seen already, appear on the packets and the seeds have been integrated into European um, scientific taxonomies. Colonial imperatives also come to the surface though when names of plants are not given at all, right? And they are simply described in terms of their qualities. Um, so to take some examples, poison bean of Norfolk Island, 
um, something I've come across, seed for washing linen and eating, fine edible fruit. So there are a number of packets that are simply inscribed with what um, their use, the use of the plant um, has, has been given as. So the erasure of indigenous plant names is complete as seeds are documented solely for their effects on the body or their utilitarian purpose. And I'm conscious as I work with these small objects that they have survived for more than 200 years extracted from their original ecologies. Their new habitats are papery ones, as we can see in the cold rooms of London's Natural History Museum and the Linnaean Society. From one perspective, an 18th century seed packet might seem like a miniature version of the global seed vault um, in Svalbard, Norway, um, which is cut into permafrost um, on that, that island. The seeds from the 18th century, which I've examined, are being kept relatively cold, um, not quite minus 18 Celsius, which is um, the temperature at uh, the seed vault, but they are being kept cold and they have indeed been saved from one perspective. Now one packet passage from Dickens' Great Expectations, to which I return again and again in this project, and different aspects come to the surface at different times as I've been working on these materials, is Pip's account of Mr. Pumblechook's shop. Mr. Pumblechook's premises in the high street of the market town were of a peppercorny and farinaceous character as the premises of a corn chandler and seedsman should be. It appeared to me that he must be a very happy man indeed to have so many little drawers in his shop, and I wondered when I peeped into one or two on the lower tiers and saw the tied-up brown paper packets inside, whether the flower seeds and bulbs ever wanted of a fine day to break out of those jails and bloom. Whether we consider these 18th century seed packets as paper jails or tiny arcs, both of these interpretations capture, I think, the confinement and potential embodied in these unique archival objects. The final section of my paper, I'll consider issues of loss and preservation more closely as they apply to these seed packets and their possible futures. Now, one might expect that working with these seed packets in the archives would be similar to spending time in the grim apothecary shop in Romeo and Juliet, with its musty seeds, remnants of pack thread, and old cakes of roses thinly scattered to make up a show. Staring up at me from these packets, however, are often quite vibrant objects. Arild seeds, A-R-I-L-L-E-D, arild seeds are those with brightly colored outer coats. And these evolved to attract and reward animals for dispersing them. The erythrina, this red and black seed, so this image is from the packet um, at the Linnaean Society that I worked with. And you can just sort of see that the top part is black, but on the right, I've just given you another period example, this one from Sloan's Herbarium and his seed collection, which is a, a much different kind of seed archive, but you can see um, the black and red just more closely in um, that image. The erythrina is an example though of a plant with what's called mimetic seeds. So, um, Arald, but mimetic, seeds that have 
um, the appearance of being arrowed, but that do not give the animal the reward of any nutritive tissue. So I start to go a bit deep into this, but um, reading an article about these seeds and this, this um, species in particular in a 2010 issue of the Annals of Botany, I learned that the hard seed coat appears to have been an adaptive measure to extend the seed's period of dormancy. So much of this paper is sort of interested in life cycles and how these were extended of paper, but now thinking about sort of the life cycle of seeds. And so how seeds, seeds evolve to entice animals um, to disperse them, as well as to stretch out their periods of dormancy and remain viable. I've been struck by the fact that I'm encountering these seeds now more than 200 years later in the spaces of archives and museums. If the hard coat of the erythrina, which was the a tropical coral tree, ensured its survival as it passed through the stomachs of its dispersers, birds, what is prolonging its life now and why? Joseph Calhoun urges us to consider how the preservation of early modern books is not necessarily compatible with the tenets of environmental stewardship, that preventive conservation in the form of climate controlled archives remains a very energy intensive um, process and probably not sustainable. As Calhoun writes, climate controlled libraries, quote, enable a fantasy of textual fixity and poetic uniformity. That even Renaissance writers who themselves were often preoccupied with how and when their books might decay and Calhoun traces this through um, works of Shakespeare and um, Henry Vaughan, even these Renaissance writers perhaps would have found it ironic, this, this fantasy of um, preservation. Now, I suspect that Calhoun's book was simply too close to publication um, to take into account the emerging literature by librarians and archivists on the carbon footprint of digitization. So he's very interested in the library and, and archival environment and um, the impact of the those conditions on kind of objects, but also thinking about the sustainability of those spaces. But this literature that's um, recently come from often digital archivists themselves um, has looked more squarely at digitization, preservation, and sustainability. And I'm thinking here of Benjamin Goldman's 2018 essay, It's Not Easy Being Green, Digital Preservation in the Age of Climate Change, and the scholarship by Ira Tanzi, Keith Pendergrass, um, Linda Taddock, and others. Goldman and Pendergrass and, um, examine the technical infrastructure required to create digital records and the environmental impact of this infrastructure. This includes the plastics and metals used to produce handheld devices um, that then will be used to access these digital archives, data centers that store these materials and the fresh water that's needed to cool them um, in their kind of highest um, energy um, intensive version, versions, the energy and also the energy intensive nature of um, frequent integrity checks of um, digital objects to ensure that they haven't been altered or corrupted, that takes a lot of energy, and the issue of e-waste um, deposited in low-income countries. So they're interested in the entire life cycle of what's called ICT, information communication technology. 
and they're they're urging members of their profession to to think about digitization and preservation um, sort of in these terms. Pendergrass even suggests that some digital projects should be allowed to degrade um, gracefully, as he says, if they no longer have clear use value. So this scholarship presses us to acknowledge also that digital objects are themselves mutable, um, that they're not stable in the first place. Now, um, I think all, all this, none of this literature is recommending stopping digitization, but um, prioritizing it. So um, as the Houghton has re recently done um, for, um, I think it's the next, the next year to focus on um, digitizing materials related to Black American history. So it's this literature by digital archivists and librarians that has caused me to think more carefully about the nature of my own research practices and the objects I study. The 18th century seed packets I've discussed today are uncatalogued and undigitized. And at one time, I would have hoped that resources would be devoted to digitizing these collections. Certainly that digitization would have sped up um, my, own, my own research and lessened my own carbon footprint. If we wish, however, to align book historical studies with the environmental humanities, our own research practices should be as sustainable as possible. And this may mean reducing the scope of one's research, not collecting every possible example um, to make a viable argument about our materials. Um, it may also mean uh, working from low resolution digital images rather than these really high resolution ones as part that are always on. Um, and I also wonder, have started to wonder if these materials were to be digitized, whether this um, would serve to recolonize these objects, which have already been wrenched from their ecologies through imperial projects. Would that digitization in fact extend that, that process? and repeat it. Now, at the same moment that this scholarship by Goldman and others is asking us to rethink whether digitization is always preservation, calls have become more urgent for institutions such as the British Museum to return stolen cultural property. One might think that the category of seeds um, sits outside these movements to have what are now museum objects returned to their original communities. But in 2006, the traditional Native American Farmers Association and the New Mexico Asequia Association authored a document entitled A Declaration of Seed Sovereignty, in which seeds are understood, quote, as a continuation of an unbroken line from our ancestors to our children and grandchildren, and that the patenting and modification of seeds by corporations constitutes, quote, the possession and destruction of stolen cultural property. And right now there's an intergenerational movement by the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island, um, which is calling for seed rematriation. So not repatriation, but rematriation, a reclaiming of seeds that have been unlawfully removed from indigenous communities. Now it's probably the Elgin marbles that will go back to Greece before seeds are returned to the Darwal people by the Linnaean Society. But I do think seeds occupy a particular register of archival and museum objects, simply because they often represent the decisions of generations to cultivate certain plants. So embedded in each seed are these decisions. Because some of the seeds in 18th century packets may yet be viable, seeds can remain viable for very long periods of time. 
Perhaps they represent a tangible way of restoring ecologies disrupted by botanical collectors. In my exploration of these paper enclosures today, I hope I pointed towards some of the ways in which these objects belong in environmental histories of the book. We don't have to merely imagine how seeds were at the heart of early modern print. Early modern print still houses these organic objects intact, and they yet might germinate and become plants. Thank you. Thank you so much for that wonderful talk. Um, I, I have so many questions, and I want to invite all of you to make use of the Q&A feature, or you're going to be stuck with my questions. Um, I'd like to start with a sort of deceptively simple one, or at least one for me, which is um, I think a lot about digitization because right now that's sort of like where we have to go. That's where, where uh, we're living right now is, is in terms of digitization. But I've never thought about digitizing a seed packet. How do you do it? Like what, what does a digitized version of a seed packet look like? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess uh, Oxford Herbaria, that's a, that's a place that has done some digitization of its collections. Um, the uh, Morrison Herbarium, there are a couple major collections that they've digitized. Oxford is an, an interesting and important case in that um, they have a number of seed packets which uh, remain closed. So as you could tell, I've been working with ones that actually have Many of them have been unwrapped and rewrapped many times over the decades. Um, but Oxford is a repository in which where they have seed packets which have um, remained sealed um, over the decades, really since they were um, they were put together. Their policy is never to open those seed packets, and they will remain closed. Um, I I think you know until the end of time. That's all, and, and I think that's right. I mean, why should they be opening those packets just so I can find three examples of sermons when I, you know, have two, two examples. Um, so I'm not, so they have not digitized their seed packets and neither have um, the other two institutions, Lemaine Society and the Natural History Museum. And I don't think it should be a priority. I think that's kind of what I'm suggesting, but I don't actually think it would be much different than the digitization of Herbaria, which, um, which both those institutions have done. And, and Herbaria, um, right, like uh, sheets will often have like large bulky plant specimens on them. And I'm not sure that that would be any different kind of trying to digitize those kinds of objects. But yeah, I guess in an ideal digitization where you to digitize one or two of these packets, you would want, you know, just images of recto verso, if we can even use those terms, um, in relation to um, these packets and then the items themselves. But then you do kind of get in that position where you're touching these objects and you're moving these objects around that haven't been moved, you know, before necessarily and deterioration will occur. That's great. Yeah. So relatedly, I mean, one thing that I thought you did a really nice job in laying out at the top of your talk was that this really in dealing with ephemera, you're dealing with stuff that in a different context might be considered or discarded as rubbish, right? Uh, I mean, we're talking about these, these very small packages uh, that are made of repurposed material, uh, whether they're diaries, periodicals, sermons, grocery bills, grammar books. I love the heterogeneity of that. And I'm just curious to know, given the ephemeral nature of this, have you given any thought to um, 
how these materials, um, not just the seeds, but the actual packets can um, offer some insight into a social history of, um, you know, gardeners and farmers of the long 18th century? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's a great question, right? The evidence is, as with almost any project, what has survived skews our understanding, right? So um, it's, it's, probably clear from the examples that I've been showing today, the examples of packets which have survived, those are quite high up on the social scale. Those were collectors um, or um, James Edward Smith at the Linnaean Society. He was collecting plant material. People was, were sending plant material to him. He has a very large archive. So it's not really giving us, um, you know, uh, a kind of wider view of people who saved seeds, like as early as Thomas Tusser's 400th Points of Good Husbandry, um, the really early modern um, husbandry treatise, he advised that the thrifty housewife would save seeds and that that was a neighborly thing to do. But we don't have the paper evidence for that kind of seed saving. And even if paper was used in that context in the 16th century. So um, I'm not sure, a, 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 you know, how much of a wider social history. I don't think that's really possible here, like the material part of that social history. You're really dealing with textual sources. Um, and even the textual sources are skewed, right, to what got published or what, you know, letters have survived. So it gives us some insight into seed saving in one part of, you know, on one part of the social spectrum, I would say. A question here from Danielle Wong. Uh, she asks, would the ink on the waste paper used to wrap the seeds ever negatively affect the seeds? For example, if the paper got wet and the ink bled? That's a great question. Um, Danielle, who's in my book, my undergrad book history course right now. So Danielle, thank you for coming. Um, that's a great question. You know, I certainly have seen the, the ink bleed through on in these packets for sure. So um, yeah, I think there's no doubt that some seeds have been affected. What's not clear to me, be, again, because a number of these have been opened and um, closed over a period of time, is you really don't know how many seeds were originally in the packet and how many have maybe kind of wandered or have been pitched. Um, that one Erythrina seed that I showed at the end, that was the one lone seed in the, in the packet, but you know there probably were some others. So it's not clear like just how many have been damaged um, by things just, you know, or we're starting to decay and that we're pitched out. But yeah, there, it, what, what is clear is ink bled through to their surfaces for sure. Yeah, great question, Danielle. Self-serving question as a library company employee, um, what do we have that played any role in this project? <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't, when I was at the library company, I wasn't working on this project. I mean, Collinson is everywhere in Brayton and yes. the leaf prints. Yep. And so um, I would say that um, Franklin and Brayton and those um, leaf prints uh, really started me thinking about kind of print and plants and kind of inking leaves and really thinking about printing and print and plants. But uh, yeah, I have no idea what seed stores um, you, you might have, if any. It's really a category of objects, as I say, because they were so tiny that, that have not survived in vast quantities. Um, Got it. No, well, I mean, I'm very happy for us to be um, some kind of germ for this project. 
we don't have to necessarily play a larger role than that. Uh, we have a question from Kate, from Katie Middleton, um, who asks, what are the contexts in which surviving seed packets tend to be found? Are most of the, are, are most of the examples you were able to investigate already preserved in archives, libraries, and museums, or are people still discovering them in attics and the like? I do see, you know, I, I do see stories from time to time and, um, you know, sort of local radio uh, pieces sometimes, even here in Calgary, you know, um, a jar of seeds has been, as exactly that, has been discovered in an attic um, and, and things like that. So you, you do hear those stories, probably not 18th century seeds, but I think in country houses in Britain, recently some excavations have, have been revealing, you know, things in the floorboards and stuff like that. So um, certainly little scraps of paper waste um, are, are coming to light. So I guess it sort of depends on the institution and how much work has been done on the institution and how modernized it is and what you might find. But I think the flow of these objects, I, the 18th century packets that I tend to work on, I think the flow of them into institutions has probably stopped at this point. Um, and institutions which may have had them, I think probably pitched them at some point if they ever got them in the first place. So I'm not thinking that there are kind of huge untapped archives of 18th century seed packets out there, but certainly people are very fascinated um, when they find seeds that like within their own homes, because they represent this material link to, um, to, their relatives or sometimes to the inhabitants of where they're living, previous inhabitants. And, and seeds really do seem to kind of crystallize or materialize this, this link, right, to kind of previous practices and um, maybe what was, what's in the garden outside and what could grow again, potentially. So I think it's that kind of past and future, those elements embodied in this single object that really capture people's imagination. So we're almost out of time, but I just wanna ask you some, uh, a quick forward looking question. I know that you published an article on this last year. Um, looking ahead to the life cycle of this project. Um, where are you headed next with this? Um, yeah, so, so great question. I've had, you know, in part because of current circumstances and how we're um, removed from our archives. Um, I'm having to think hard. What I haven't really talked about it in, in this paper, but what I'm trying to work on is the actual paper of these packets. But that's something that is, I'm finding challenging. Um, you could see some qualities of the paper in the images, um, but when I photographed them, I wasn't always, um, or even often, holding a light underneath the paper to kind of look at watermarks and things like that. And so, a natural place would be for me to do more work on the paper and I hope to get further with that. Um, but there are some challenges, um, again, because these I'm really working from my own reference photographs. Um, and, and I'm finding studying paper, although there are more and more resources all the time, but studying paper digitally is, is quite challenging. I certainly have a call to action from this, which is to spend some time at the library company looking to see if we have anything else for you so that we can uh, entice you to come back for a third fellowship. 
But uh, thank you so much, Maria. This was a wonderful talk. Thank you for sharing this work in progress. Sure, my pleasure, Will, and thank you all for coming. And uh, for those of you who are still here, uh, next week, if you're looking for something to do, same time, same place, uh, we will be inviting Zach Bates, who's gonna be talking about William Patterson and the afterlives of the Patriot opposition, 1740 to 1762. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>